is important for the continuation of our human existence. Start with the dirt on dirt, because we think like dirt. It's just that gross stuff that makes us need to shower, but there's a lot more to it. Unless you spend a lot of time underground like we do, you might not think very often about dirt. But dirt is awesome. It's everywhere. And just about every living thing on Earth depends on it. From the plants that grow in it, to the animals that eat the plants, to the animals that eat those animals. That's why we're really glad that one of our viewers, four-year-old Caleb from Mississippi, wrote to ask us, what is dirt? Great question. First of all, the stuff that fills our flower pots and baseball fields may just be dirt to us, but scientists have a different name for it. They call the top layer that covers most of the land soil. So what is soil? Well, it's a mixture of things. How soil looks and feels depends on where you are. So some very dry places have a lot of gritty sand in the soil, while soil in other parts of the world might have hard rocks, soft clay, or even pieces of seashell in it. Usually though, soil is made of four main things. Mostly, soil is made up of minerals. Minerals are hard, stony substances that form things like rocks, sand, and clay. The next big part of soil is water. That's right, even if a clump of dirt doesn't seem like mud to you, it actually has water in it. All living things need water to survive, and soil does a great job of holding on to water for plants, animals, and other things that live in it. And you know what else is in the soil that you probably can't tell is there? Air. Just like water, air in the soil is important because living things need air too. It fills the spaces between all those little bits of minerals, water, and other parts of the soil. And the beauty of it is, the animals that live in the soil actually help more water and air get inside it. Creatures like worms and insects and even small mammals like moles and mice dig tunnels down in the dirt. Those tunnels let air and water trickle in and flow around so that even deep down, the soil has what living things need to make a nice home there. And this, my friends, brings us to probably the most important part of soil. In fact, it's some of the most important stuff on Earth. Scientists call it organic matter. Organic matter includes anything that's alive, like those worms and insects, but also parts of plants and even living things that we can't even see like bacteria. Plus, organic matter also includes things that used to be alive, like dead plants and animals. After those things die, other living things like fungi, bacteria, insects, and worms eat what's left of those plants and animals and break them down into very small pieces. This broken down material puts nutrients back into the soil, and plants then use those nutrients to grow. So soil is where plants get their food. Scientists call this special nutrient-rich part of the soil by its own name, humus. Humus is what gives soil its dark brown color, and it even sometimes contains special bacteria that make soil smell, well, dirty. Now all of these things are mixed together to make soil, but the mixture isn't always the same. Scientists have found that soil has many layers to it. The top layer is all made up of organic matter with lots of that good, useful humus. Beneath that is the layer that we often call topsoil. Topsoil is made mostly of humus with a little bit of minerals sprinkled in. This layer is where seeds start to grow. As you go further down away from the surface, you find that the deeper layers of soil contain more minerals than humus. And once you get through the bottom layer, you run into a layer of solid rock. So now you have the dirt on soil. And you know it's made of a minerals, water, air, and organic matter. Thank you for asking, Caleb. Does anybody else have a question? Let us know by either leaving a comment or emailing us at kids at the uh -oh. Thanks, guys, and see you next time on SciShow Kids.
Yeah, I don't know where that went. We're in trouble. Ah. Oh, thank you. Okay. That was scary. Um, so what is soil? She defined it pretty well in the video, but it is an ecosystem made up of minerals, organic material, gas, and liquid. What's the liquid in soil? Water, we hope. Um, we're going to use that soil to produce almost all the food in the world. Why do I say almost? How else can I grow food? With water, hydroponics. So that is that water thing that we talked about last unit. It is the habitat for many things. Think about the last time you dug in the dirt and all the creepies and crawlies that crawled out. That's just the stuff that you can see. It holds water and it holds minerals. It filters and purifies water. When the water district was here, they talked about the fact that we're recharging our aquifers by putting the water from the reclamation systems on the stream bed and then it percolates through the soil down into our aquifers. As it percolates through, it tends to give up a lot of the impurities and pollution and only the water goes in. It's gonna store and transfer heat. Back in the old day, before we had refrigerators, we had root cellars, where you would go out in your yard and dig essentially a hole. And in that hole, you put anything that you can, anything that you wanted to kind of refrigerate, like your potatoes and your tomatoes and stuff. And you did that because in the ground, in the dirt, that temperature stays constant. It's not gonna freeze, it's not gonna get too hot. It allowed us to kind of keep our food for longer than we'd be able to do up in our houses. And it is part of the lithosphere. The lithosphere is the outer part of our planet. For those of you who haven't had earth science since like sixth grade, we are going to have at some point a little earth science refresher because you need to know about plate tectonics and stuff, but that'll be at a later date. So what determines your soil? The first thing is the parent material. The parent material is what eroded, what broke down to make your soil. If it was sandstone, your soil is going to be sandy. If it was volcanic eruption lava, your soil is going to be kind of black and gritty and have a lot of phosphorus in it. So depending on where the soil originated is gonna determine what the soil's made of. Climate, your soil is not going to develop really well in cold temperatures. It doesn't develop below freezing. This is why we don't have things growing in Antarctica other than the fact that it's covered in ice. It's why we don't have things growing at the very tops of our mountains because it's so cold that we don't get soil produced. Topography, we're going to look at in a second with a picture. The organisms that are in the soil are going to determine how well our soil mixes, how much oxygen's in our soil, how much poop is in our soil. We want worms. The worms are going to mix the soil and they're going to poop in the soil and it helps us grow our plants. That's why at places like Lowe's in the Garden Center or Green Thumb, they actually sell worms 
that you can sprinkle out onto your garden. It helps your garden grow. Um, and time. It takes a lot of time for our rock to break down and become soil. Succession does create fertile soil. What is the fungus, I'm going to block the screen, not that y'all don't have it in front of you, but what is the fungus that breaks rock down into the first thing that looks like soil? Lichen. So the lichen has enzymes that will break down rock and create soil. Once we have a little bit of soil, then we have plants grow. Those plants die and decompose and add nutrients to that soil and the soil becomes more and more nutrient rich. Here is that idea of slope. So you have your mountain, right? And the rain hits the steep side of the mountain and erosion occurs. So as the rain hits, it's gonna run off that mountain. When the water runs off, it will carry soil with it. It'll carry the topsoil, the most nutrient rich parts of the soil. And all of that will accumulate at the bottom of the slope. That's where the most fertile land is because all of the nutrient stuff from the side of the mountain ends up down there. And so you can grow things. If you remember, there was that systems diagram thing that you can draw. Um, you guys need to be able to do that for soil. When you draw a systems diagram, what's a store? What's it represented by? A box. A box. What's a transfer? An arrow. Input is the, trans is the arrow going into the box. Output is the arrow coming out of the box. What is the difference between a transfer and a transformation? Transformations change. So when I have a transformation, by the time it gets to the next store, it doesn't look like it did in the previous store. So a transformation could be precipitation where you go from gaseous water to liquid water. So a transformation is changing the form. A transfer just moves it from one store to the other. When we talk about this, and I'm not going to read everything on this table, the fraction is the part. If I say here's the fraction, it's the part of what we're talking about. The constituent is what it's made of, and then the function is what it does. So we are going to have rock particles in our soil. And they're going to be made up of sand and gravel and silt and clay. This is the stuff your soil is made of. It's also going to be made up of salts. And then our minerals like nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur. This is the skeleton of your soil. It's what most of your soil is, is going to be rock particles. Humus, humus is the awesome stuff that helps your plant grow. Humus is everything that is decomposed, that is now going to add back in nutrients. So as a plant grows, it sucks up the nutrients and uses the nutrients to make the plant. When the plant dies, if it stays there, it decomposes and all of those nutrients get released back. Really good humus is almost black in color. Water, we want water because water helps things grow, right? And it's coming from rain, it's coming from our aquifers. Air is important. It is important that your soil has air in it. When you plant a seed, the first process that that seed is going to do is cellular respiration. And you think plants and you only think photosynthesis, but remember that seed is underground. 
And what's one of the key components to photosynthesis? Sunlight. And if you have planted that seed, is it getting sunlight? No. So is that seed doing photosynthesis? No. It's doing cellular respiration to start the growth process. It has some stored energy, which is why sunflower seeds taste so good, right? And it's going to access that stored energy by doing cellular respiration. And in order to do cellular respiration, it needs oxygen. If you've ever been down in the sports fields and they've pulled like the little plugs, the machine that goes through and pulls all the little turds up out of the soil, they're aerating that soil. They're creating air pockets in that soil so that then the grass can grow better. That's why they do that. And then we've got all of our creepy crawlies that are living in our soil. We've got bacteria, we've got fungus, we've got worms, we've got roly polies. And we have bigger animals like naked mole rats. These things are going to poop and that poop is high in nutrient. And as they crawl around and move around in the soil, they're mixing the soil, they're aerating the soil by creating tunnels. They do great things for our soil. You need to memorize this. This comes up a lot on tests. And it's not really intrinsic as far as the names to it, so it's just pure memorization. Your O layer of your soil, as I dig down, the O layer is the layer that you're standing on. This is where the leaves drop and decompose. It's our organic layer. The A horizon, the A horizon is when you dig and bury your seed to grow a plant. You are digging in the A horizon. This is your topsoil, it's your humus. The B horizon is where you have your minerals and your organic matter kind of building up and accumulated. It comes from above. Well, how does it get down to the B horizon? With our naked mole rats, right? So as they dig down in, they drag with them the soil. Worms are gonna do the same thing. Your sea horizon is now the weathered rock and it sits right above the R horizon, which is the bedrock. So in our area, you dig down about eight inches and you hit the R horizon. That's when you're digging in, mom says, hey, go out and plant my rose bush for me. And you go out with the shovel and like you dig in and clang, you have now hit bedrock. Our bedrock is not very deep, especially if you live up in RSM, um, Foothill or Kodo. This whole thing could be six inches. In other areas, this whole thing could be, you know, 10 feet. The more fertile your area, the deeper this is. This I don't want you to stress over because we're going to do a lab about it. We'll do a worksheet about it. But essentially, I have three main components to soil. I have clay, I have sand, and I have silt. And I'm going to talk about what those three things are in a second. And based on the percentage of clay, sand, or silt, I'm going to give my soil a specific name. And this soil triangle is how you figure out the specific name of your soil. All right, clay. Who's had ceramics? A few of you. That's clay. Clay is when you pick it up and you squish it together and let go, it holds its shape. Clay has a very small diameter for a particle if you were to look at it underneath the microscope. 
Here's the question though. Does water go through clay? If you have a plate that's made of clay, is water going to go through it? No. Not very easily, if at all. And so do you want all of your soil to be clay? No, because the water can't go through it, and so nothing's going to grow in that. Um, who has been to a river or a lake? Have you squished your toes around at the bottom of the lake or the river? You know that ooey gooey feeling? That's silt. So silt's a little bit bigger than clay. Um, silt is kind of like the Goldilocks of parent material of particles because the water will go through it but not super fast. And so it's really good for growing things on. It kind of explains why our best growing areas are in floodplains of rivers. So if you think about the Midwest, the best, most productive farms are on floodplains. And last but not least is sand. You have all been to the beach, I hope. <coughs> Probably poor assumption, but I hope you've all been to the beach. Sand is really gritty, big particles. What happens if I were to pour water on sand? Goes straight through. Sand doesn't hold water at all. So is sand great for growing things on? <coughs> no. And I will explain how to use this later. It'll make more sense when we actually get our hands on some dirt. Okay, I am not going to read this either. Um, we have sandy soil, clay soil, and loamy soil. Most of our soil in this area tends to be more clay soil, which is why it's hard to get things to grow. Um, why it's important that we really grow native plants because they've adapted to our clay soil. Loam soil is Goldilocks. Loam soil is what you want to grow in, right? It has a mineral content that is intermediate just right. It has a potential to hold organic material that is just right, intermediate. It's good at drainage, but not like super fast, not super slow. It um, has intermediate air spaces. So when I plant those seeds, they get just the right amount of air. So if you remember nothing else, remember that loamy soil is the Goldilocks of growing food. You all know that reference, right? Goldilocks goes in, three bears. Um, texture is when you feel it, what does it feel like? And you guys are going to get to feel soil. I know, you are all so excited. You get to play with dirt later on this year. Porosity is how quickly the water goes through. If you have a high porosity, water goes through the soil really quickly. If you have a low porosity, water kind of hangs out on the top. We want a intermediate porosity. We want the water to be able to go through but not super fast. Um, the soil chemistry is important. We do need some clay in your soil because clay is important because it has an electrical charge. That electrical charge allows it to hold on to the minerals that the plants need. Um, and we need some acid. We need some base. We need like this good intermediate mix of all of our soil chemistry. We need creepy crawlies. We need fungi and bacteria and protozoas because as the leaves fall on that O horizon, it is this stuff that breaks it down from a leaf back to its components, back to its nutrients. We need our rodents and our earthworms and our snails because they're gonna mix the soil, they're gonna aerate the soil. So you need creepy crawlies in your garden. 
Remember that fertile soil is non-renewable. We have what we have and we gotta figure out how to treat it properly. Fertile soil has enough of the three key nutrients to promote plant growth. If you were to go buy some miracle Grow to make your mom's garden grow better, it's gonna have a combination of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And it's gonna be in just the right proportions. As we grow plants and we overcrop, I never let the ground rest, those plants are stripping these three things out of the soil. And if these three things are out of the soil, nothing's going to grow unless I artificially recharge it. Um, I'm not going to show this, but it's here. Bozeman Biology is a teacher out of Montana that does great review videos for you. So if you are getting ready for the test and you're thinking, I don't want to reread the lecture, I don't want to listen to Ms. Beeman like rattle on for 40 minutes, Bozeman Biology is a great place to go. If you ever have Mrs. Miller in AP Bio, she loves Bozeman. I love Hank. We all have to have our men in our lives. Um, last couple of slides for today. We got to talk about how are we going to conserve soil and how do we degrade it. And we're going to start with why is soil so important? The value of soil. Soil is wonderful. Well, of course, we live on it. And if it is fertile, it can produce marvelous things. Fertile soil puts food on our plate, but the number of plates is growing, and more and more meat ends up on these plates. And part of what we previously put on our plates, we now put into our petrol tanks. The what does he mean by the fact that we're putting our growing stuff into our petrol tanks or gas tanks? Biodiesel. Not our lungs. So biodiesel, we are taking corn and we are turning it into ethanol and that ethanol can go into like any flex fuel vehicle can run off of ethanol. Um, it's really controversial in the Midwest right now because a lot of the farms have figured out that you are gonna make more money growing corn for biodiesel than you are growing it for animal feed or human consumption. And so we are taking that arable land that used to feed the rural and we are converting it into land that is feeding our gas tanks. This again requires more fertile soil. Productive land is becoming scarce. In 1960, there was still almost half a hectare of farmland for every person on earth. In 2020, there will be only around a third of that left. Consequently, even unsuitable land is being turned into farmland. No wonder land grabbing is on the rise. Fertile soil is precious, but instead of looking after it, we try to extract the maximum yield from it. But overusing land or cultivating unsuitable land leads to soil degradation. We need healthy soil to produce crops and timber and store and purify water. Soil provides us and our environment with important ecosystem services. Degraded soil makes us vulnerable. Unsustainable land management is sometimes the result of ignorance and it sometimes results from poverty where land users have no other choice. Land degradation is driven by things like cutting down forests, overgrazing, monoculture, salination, overuse of fertilizers and chemicals, or farming on sloping ground leading to soil erosion. 
not to forget climate change, which alters the drought and rain patterns. But not only does climate change contribute to soil degradation, soil degradation also worsens climate change because degraded soil can store less carbon. But why does all of this matter so much? Well, because it takes 2,000 years to generate about 10 centimeters of topsoil. That is a long time. Soil is a practically non-renewable resource whose over-exploitation is costing us dearly. For example, Niger loses approximately 8% of its gross domestic product to overgrazing and excessive salinity in rice paddy fields. Solving these problems through sustainable land management would save two-thirds of this money. Globally, soil degradation is an expensive business. Already it costs every person on Earth $70 each year, which in total is about $490 billion. To this, one needs to add the indirect costs of environmental and humanitarian disasters, such as water shortages, yield shortfalls, or dust storms. The consequence is damage to health, forced migration, famine, and eventually conflict. But how can we prevent this? First of all, it is very difficult to take all these possible consequences into account in planning processes because it is so hard to recognize the true costs of our inaction. With the right figures, we could make the right decisions. We have to include the value of the sold services and the cost of land degradation into our calculation. Then it becomes obvious that using soils in the way that most of us do today is simply not economically viable in the long run. To solve this problem, we set up the Economics of Land Degradation Initiative, ELD. We want to find out more. All right, so that's why soil conservation is important. That's what we're doing to kind of wreck it. And that's why we're learning about it. Um, let's start with the idea of erosion. Back to that sixth grade earth science class, erosion is going to take soil away. And there's a couple of ways that we do erosion. Wind erosion is essentially you have no vegetation on the ground and the wind blows across it. And as it blows across it, it carries the soil away. So this is the dust bowl, for example. The other way that we see it is through landslides where you have a lot of water and again, no vegetation to hold the soil in place. And so the soil just washes away. This picture right here is an example of a landslide that occurred in New Zealand. And yes, those are three cows stuck up on this kind of now pillar where all of the other soil around it's given way. They rescued those cows by a helicopter. It's kind of cool. Uh, this is gullying. Gullying occurs when the water is going to find the path of least resistance to get out to the river or the lake or the ocean. And it creates essentially its own gully through that land. Overgrazing occurs when we put too many animals on too small of a space and those animals eat up all the vegetation. And again, once the vegetation's gone, now we are kind of prone to erosion. Now if it rains, the soil goes away. If the wind blows, the soil goes away because there's no roots to hold it. Your APIB approved example is the Sahel region of Africa. In the Sahel region of Africa, your wealth as a man is determined by how many cows you own. Not the health of those cows, but how many cows you own. So I am more wealthy if I own 100 cows, even if they are on the verge of death, 
than my neighbor who owns two really healthy cows. This encouraged people to get more and more livestock, all grazing on the small piece of arable land. They overgrazed it and then they had drought. So now we've eaten up all the plants and there hasn't been enough water for new plant growth and the wind started blowing. And so they lost that non-renewable resource of their soil. Overuse of the land depletes the nutrients on that land, makes the land more prone to erosion. It is positive feedback. The more erosion you have, the less plants you can grow, which then means less roots to hold the soil, which means more soil is lost. This is the main cause of the Dust Bowl. Deforestation is the complete removal of a forest. What states in the United States are doing deforestation? You're living in one of them. So California in the northern area, Oregon and Washington, those areas where we have big massive forests. This is where we're getting a majority of our lumber from. It's where we're getting a majority of our paper from. We go in and the most economical way to do this is to cut down every single tree in an area. We've now taken away all of the roots that are holding the soil so now we're prone to erosion again. Um, in addition, you now have taken away all of the shade. So the surface layers of that soil are warmer. Well, that warmer soil doesn't break down as quick. Um, the temperature of the streams goes up, affects the life that lives there. And last but not least, trees act as carbon sinks. So in the process of doing photosynthesis, trees are taking in carbon dioxide which is like the of carbon of climate change. And so they're sucking in all of this carbon dioxide. We take away the trees, we take away that potential to kind of regulate climate change. Unsustainable agricultural practices cannot last over long periods of time. Unsustainable agricultural techniques are removal of the crop after harvesting. What that means is I harvest my corn and typically, because I want to grow something on that land again relatively quickly, I take then off all the plants as well, and I replant that land. A more sustainable way of doing this is harvesting my corn and then leaving the plant, the stalk of that corn, to die naturally and decompose. When it decomposes, it puts the nutrients back into the soil. We are not doing that in the United States because our arable land is too valuable to leave what we call fallow. Fallow means that I'm not farming on it. Um, I am growing in rows with no interspatial plants. Guys, we figured out that part of the bee problem is that we are feeding the bees one thing in their diet. Would you guys do well if you ate only one thing every day for your entire life? You only get cornflakes and nothing else? That's what we're doing to our bees. You go to the Midwest, you go to Indiana, and you drive through that state, and the only thing being grown is corn, which means our bees are eating only corn. We can fix that by growing interspatial plants so that, you know, the bee has a choice between corn and a daisy, and they get to vary their diet because in the rows between the corn, we are growing something else. We have an excessive use of pesticides, which are killing indiscriminately. 
We've talked about bad irrigation practices. And last but not least, monoculture. Monoculture is growing the same thing. Again, you drive across Illinois or Indiana and all they're growing is corn. That's not great for the soil because I need to grow some other things that aren't pulling the same nutrients out. I need to rotate my crops. I need to grow corn this season, which is taking all the nutrients out. And maybe next season I grow soybeans because soybeans will actually put nitrogen back into the soil. I need to rotate what I'm growing. Last thing I want to talk about today is this idea of urbanization. Beginning in about the 1900s, the Industrial Revolution, we have urbanized our cities. We have decided that I would rather live in a city than live on a farm. And as we've urbanized our cities, we have now paved over arable land. Land that we used to farm on. The city and suburbs of Chicago, all of that used to be farmland. The city of Irvine, most of it used to be farmland. And we have now built our homes on it. So that little eighth of an apple is getting smaller and smaller. Um, in 1900, two out of 10 people lived in the city. By 2010, five out of 10 people on the planet lived in a city. That's a huge um, increase. In addition to losing urban, arable land, um, our big concern is climate change. How many of you guys drove in a car to school today? How many of you guys have a commute longer than five minutes? 10 minutes? 15 minutes, right? All of that leads to increased fossil fuel use. All of that leads to increased gases in the atmosphere from your tailpipe, which leads to climate change. Especially in cities like Los Angeles, people have long commute times. The city of Mission Viejo is super expensive to live in. Let me tell you our new teachers, like Ms. Kozik next door, who's just starting her life, she can't afford to buy here in Mission Viejo. That pushes her out further and further to where the cheap homes are, like Elsinore, Corona, Land well, she's not living in Lancaster, but people who like work in downtown LA live in Lancaster and commute two hours a day. Why? They can get a four bedroom home for the same price that you could get a two bedroom condo here for. And so as we push out, our commutes get longer and our impact on climate change gets more intense. And cities like Los Angeles are not designed for carpooling because your workplaces are so spread out that you can't carpool with someone who doesn't work in the same building that you do. Because you can't like get out of the car and walk to work. That's where we're gonna end for today because those other two slides are more about farming. Take a breath. We're done for today. Go ahead and close up. Tomorrow we'll get out and run around campus for a little bit.